Please turn to 2 Samuel. Gosh, even old persons in the front over here have non-paper Bibles. It's a trip. Wow. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, help me this morning. Teach. Help me unfold the beauty of your history of redemption. As we sung this morning, your amazing grace is unending love toward all who are in your kingdom because you have sent your son to sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever unendingly and thus your love in mercy and kindness is secured for all who are in him let this shine forth this morning through this sermon help our hearts love what we see to the glory of Jesus the King Amen as Americans, <clears throat> we're pretty clueless of monarchy. <laughs> we're, we don't like it. We're birthed in not liking it. We're clueless of the sovereign reign of kings. But if you believe in Jesus as your personal Savior, if He's your treasure, if all of your marbles are banked on His sacrificial death for your sins, on His bodily resurrection from the dead for your justification and for your eternal life, then you should love monarchy. You should love your King. So I want you to listen to one of the most significant verses in all the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God speaking through Nathan, the prophet, to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. In redemptive history, Jesus didn't just come out of the blue. He was prophesied about. He was anticipated. He was in the lineage of that man, King David. Why? Because this is how God set up redemptive history. This is week 23 in our series titled, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. We started from before creation. We saw creation. We saw sin and the fall and Noah and the flood and the covenant with Abraham and the Mosaic covenant in entering the land and last time we saw the first king of Israel. In the year 
1051 BC, Saul was made king over Israel. And about 40 years later, David began to reign. And oh, is, is he something? He, he doesn't do anything half-heartedly. He was an extremely complex character. He was at times a wild bunch of contradictions. He threw himself into life, anything and everything he did, passionately with reckless abandon. If he wanted to worship the Lord, he worshipped him publicly dancing in the street. And it ended a marriage. And he could blow it big time. His success throughout his life was unmatched. And his failures were atrocious. But David's repentance was real. And it was desperately sincere. Now, the way David became king, his selection as the king to replace Saul, whom God rejected, was a surprise to anybody who would look around. God sent his prophet, the judge Samuel, whom he had anointed Saul years earlier. And once God rejects Saul, he says, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons. One of them is going to be king. I'll let you know whom. Samuel gets there, and he grabs the oldest, Eliab, and he says, look at the stature of this guy. Look how handsome he is. This has to be the one. But God responds in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then come the next six sons of Jesse, and they're all rejected. Until you get to verse 11, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest. He's a teenager here. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And as you read his life, you could sum it up this way. He was a man after God's own heart. David from childhood was extremely gifted by God in music, as a poet, and as a warrior. He wrote many of our psalms. 
And many of his writings in the Psalms unveil the deepest emotions of his heart, which reflects so much of the heart of those whom God has called to himself. Oh God, I have sinned so grievously against you and you only have I sinned. I know you don't merely desire an outward sacrifice, bull, goat, and sin offering, but you want a broken and contrite heart. Oh, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but renew within me a right spirit, a right heart. I will again praise you and on and on and on. He was the greatest king in Israel's history. He was the supreme symbol of the kings in the Old Testament. He brought unity to Israel. He expanded her borders during his 40-year reign. He was filled with the Holy Spirit as we read in 1 Samuel. But none of that is the most significant thing about David. The most significant thing about him is about what God did. It's about the covenant that God made with David. We have seen in this series the covenant God made with Noah, all mankind. The covenant He made with Abraham. The covenant He made with and through Moses to the children of Israel. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And now we see the covenant He made with King David. We call it the Davidic covenant. Let's read that whole covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17, when it was initiated. Starting with verse 12, we'll read through verse 17. Nathan the prophet, sent by God to David, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, you die. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke 
to David. That's huge. Now, as what so often happens through the Old Testament prophets, in one saying, they may be referring to something a couple thousand years ahead of time. And also, 20 years ahead of time. It's this long telescope view that, that, that as they speak, and it all just gets squashed down as if it's all happening at the same time. For instance, when he says, your son will build a house, he does mean his son Solomon will build a temple. But he means more than that. He means there's another son after him who will build an eternal dwelling and house. In other words, God promises here on the one hand, Solomon, David's son, is going to reign. He will build the temple. And that's why he can say in this prophecy in verse 14, when he commits iniquity, that's not Jesus. He doesn't commit iniquity. Solomon certainly does. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Okay? There's Solomon, but the promise in this covenant goes beyond Solomon. Beyond his sin, beyond his imperfections. Because verse 13 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 16, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So three times in this covenant, he uses the word forever. And when God promises to do something forever, then all eternity is being shaped by him. We know from verse 12, David is going to die. He intends that. And yet he says, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this must mean that the kingdom of David is going to be established by one of his descendants. Now, Solomon here is depicted as a sinner. A sinner who has to be chastened. The kingdom can never be secure in the hands of a sinner. We flip forward a little bit to 1 Kings. We'll, we'll go a little bit to, to Solomon, David's son who reigned after him. In 1 Kings chapter 11 we read this. Starting with verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon 
because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what Yahweh commanded. And therefore, Yahweh said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And so this shows that the promise to establish David's throne, his kingdom, cannot happen as long as his descendants are rebellious and disobedient. There is a conditionality in the covenant that God made with David. And that condition is repeated over and over in Kings and in Chronicles. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, David tells his son Solomon that God said, quote, If your sons, here's the condition, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Or in the same way, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 25, Solomon then later, he prays this way. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you, David, have walked before me. And so over Israel's history, as you read it in the Old Testament, they're learning the lesson after David and after Solomon that disobedience in the king that's ruling over them always brought the nation to ruin in judgment again and again. But the godly among them throughout the centuries after David and the prophets that God would raise up, they knew something. That promise is for sure. They knew somehow God's going 
to fulfill that promise. And a king, one of David's descendants, is going to come and he's going to sit on that throne forever. And so they, they saw it's going to happen. God's going to do it. He's going to fulfill the covenant. And a son of David will reign. Because throughout their history after David, this promise just kept going through their songs, psalms, and other prophets, and through their poetry. When God initially made this promise, this pact, this covenant with David, it was in the middle of the 900s B.C. A couple hundred years later, you turn to the songbook of Israel, and this is just a sampling of their songbook on how they viewed that covenant by the Spirit of God. Psalm 89, verse 29 forward. Here's how they would sing. I will establish David's offspring forever, and his throne is the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter or alter a word that went forth from my lips. The next line, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established Forever, a faithful witness in the skies. They knew the sinners who reigned over them, David's descendants. And they knew God's going to fulfill this. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the Spirit of the Lord would say, the promise is coming. The Son of David is coming. I will bring him. He will be righteous. And he will sit on the throne. And so, for instance, the prophet Ezekiel, he looks to the future salvation of God's people and he speaks for God after the exile. So he's in the 500s now, B.C., almost 500 years after the promise given to David. And we hear this from him in chapter 37, verses 23 to 24. I will save them 
from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Or you turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Hundreds of years after the covenant God made with David. And Jeremiah stresses that this coming king will fulfill the condition of righteousness. Saying in verse 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Here's his name. Yahweh is our righteousness. But then it was Isaiah who saw the glory of the son of David clearer than anybody and essentially identified this human king to come with Yahweh, with God. In chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so the absolute guarantee of the covenant with David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as king. And he will sit upon the throne. When a covenant is conditional, but it's also absolutely guaranteed and sure, then you can be sure that it is God himself who's going to intervene and fulfill those conditions. And so after these prophets again renew and prophesy the covenant, almost 500 years later, an angel shows up to a teenage girl named Mary and says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And you got to hear this if you want to understand your Bible. And the Lord God will give to your baby, Mary, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of the promise that one of David's descendants, human descendant, will rule forever. Now, just, I'm going to pose a question because when I look back, when I first became a Christian, one teaching that I would hear over and over is this. There is Israel. And then there's the gospel of Jesus in this in-between kind of time of grace. And then later, down the road, when a thousand-year rule and reign comes, the king of Israel, Jesus, will come and reign over Israel. And that's how we should understand that. As if he's not ruling and reigning as king over non-Jews now. And that's just not true. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15 for a moment. In Acts chapter 15, in the early church, they had some stuff to deal with over this issue. So there's a major council in Jerusalem. And remember that the issue of this council had to do with whether non-Jews had to be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, the question was really, could non-Jews benefit from the Messiah? Could they actually benefit from His work on the cross? Can they benefit from His kingly rule, the Son of David's rule, without them, that is the non-Jew, the Gentile, without them becoming Jewish via circumcision, kosher diet, ceremonial keepings. That was the issue. And so at the council first, the Apostle Peter, a Jew, he stands up and he says, you know what happened a while back at Cornelius' house when I was sent, I was kicked to go. That's how you know, God had to really bang Peter in the head to even preach to non-Jews. And how while I was preaching the gospel of Jesus, these Gentiles, not circumcised, have not converted to Judaism, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us without them becoming Jewish. And then the Apostle Paul stands up and he says, let me tell you about my mission to the Gentiles throughout the region of Galatia. City after city after city. Numbers of Gentiles are coming to faith. 
King Jesus is pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them and they're not becoming Jewish. And they're not supposed to. And then Jesus' little brother, James, who was main leader in the Jerusalem church for a couple decades, he then puts the nail in the coffin. In chapter 15, uh, verse 13, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has related how God has visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he quotes Amos. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So this has to mean that when God said to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Right there, he had in view a house and a kingdom much greater than natural, physical Israel. Jesus is the king over all the universe, reigning savingly over Everyone who, by faith in His life, death, and resurrection, have come to Him. As Isaiah said, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. No end on the throne of David and over His kingdom. It will be a worldwide reign. And as Revelation chapter 11 says of him, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. He is reigning and He will come back and reign in the consummation of the kingdom. But what this means for the church, for us here, that we are now subjects of the King. And we are to submit ourselves to the Son of David who rules right now, invisibly, until, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And our mission is to announce the good news to people in every city and county, tribe and 
nation and language that they could freely become happy subjects of this king if they would just transfer their allegiance from the kingdom of this world to King Jesus, the promised Son of David. We are to tell them the gospel. And one way to say it is this. The righteous king of all the universe against whom you have rebelled is offering eternal, absolute amnesty, pardon, forgiveness to everybody who willingly comes to him. As Jesus the King cried out, all you who are burdened and heavy laden can't take it. You realize there's no meaning in life and death is rushing at you. Come to me. Come to me. And I'll give you true, eternal rest. So we who are Christians are to soak our roots deep into the biblical narrative. Deep into redemptive history the way God set it up. God made a covenant with David, David almost 3,000 years ago. And it took a thousand years before it was time and God sent that son. And that son came proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he sits on the right hand of God after his resurrection, ruling and reigning. It is not a democracy. We don't have a Magna Carta, as long as you can agree with our representatives. A lot of the church today is acting like that. The times have changed, the culture is changing. Maybe there's more than two sexes. The sovereign monarch has spoken in the beginning. God created man. Male and female, he created them. Well, it's the age of same-sex marriage. And it permeates the culture. I don't know if I want to follow the king, because I will be ostracized to hold to the king's sovereign word on homosexual activity. He is a sovereign. He is not an elected president. He is a king who came and rightfully sat on the throne in fulfillment of the covenant that the Creator made with a sinful man David. And this man 
Jesus. Happens to be the Creator Himself become human in order to reign after having made a sacrifice for sins. And raised from the dead and sat down at the right hand. The very sovereignty and the wisdom and the love of God which assured David of an eternal kingdom. Here's the message of the gospel. Can assure any soul in this room of God's eternal kindness to you. Hear his, hear his plea. Here's the plea of King Jesus given 700 years before he was born as a human being. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What do we do? It goes for every person in this room. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years or 5 minutes. What do we do? Daily, we thirst. But I'm not thirsty. I speak to myself, repent and get thirsty. Put salt on your tongue, the Word of God, the fellowship of the saints, the spiritual disciplines, and thirst. And come daily to King Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Empty-handed. Buy without price, without money. He doesn't need you. He wants to be everything to you. Come and thirst through the son of David who came and put away the barrier our sin by the sacrifice of himself. So I'm going to close with words from Jesus to us. And then after that, I'm going to let the Apostle John close those words out to be more precise. These words he spoke after his death, after his resurrection, and after his ascension. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, John, about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so here, John, as I close, because the next thing he now says after Jesus' words, he's reflecting what we just saw in Isaiah 55. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears the Gospel say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. For King Jesus is reigning right now. And saints, dear believer, in the midst of Western civilization crumbling under our feet, in the culture we live in, in the midst of the culture and law coming against believing the Bible, we can trust our King. He is reigning and He will reign until all His enemies are put under His feet. Let us continue to come to him and to listen to the king and stand. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness. For as Paul said, in fulfillment of this Davidic covenant, you did not spare your own son. But you gave him and you delivered him up for us all. And thus, in no matter what age or circumstance, how shall you not freely, through the Son of David, give to us all things, to live or to die, to suffer or to abound? You are good. Your grace is sufficient. And your power is made manifest in our weakness. In you, in you alone, we trust. Amen. Let us stand.